welcome back to the Road Dogs Podcast. No need for alarm here, folks. Uh, there is not a bomb drop in your city. There is, however, a news bomb that is important in relation to this episode. So here I am doing a little pre-credit stinger. We sat down to record this episode Saturday and had all intentions of maybe talking about if It Follows, our movie for this week, is a sequel. However, <laughs> Nick had cited some interviews in the pre-research of the show saying, hey, David Robert Mitchell does not want to make a sequel to It Follows. Well, here we are, Monday, October 30th, and David Robert Mitchell just announced he is making a sequel to It Follows. So, <laughs> here we are. David Robert Mitchell is coming back, as is Mike Monroe, for a sequel they're calling They Follow. From everything we've read, it'll be produced by Neon. They have not started filming the movie yet, which is weird. They're going to introduce the title to International Bars as we get AFM. And they're hoping to get Principal Zography started in 2024 after the strike, which will be cool. But that's all we know about It Follows 2. So far, they follow. Uh, <laughs> we're kind of in the dark. Nick is not here, but is equally as shocked as I am that they've just dropped this on a Monday afternoon to be like, hey, It Follows 2, coming eventually. So something to look forward to. You know, We talked about David Robert Mitchell uh, later in the show about his career and how come he hasn't made a movie in a while. Well, he is. Uh, so <laughs> you have that to look forward to. And hopefully it's not terrible, because as we know, Horror sequels, they're terrible. That's why the first one we did was Hellraiser 3. Just a warning. But with the same team kind of coming back, I would say confidence is pretty high that this will be a good one. So anyways, with that out of the way, go enjoy the show. Alright, welcome back to another edition of of the Road Dogs podcast. I am your host, Nick Shaw, joined by my cousin and co-host, Josh Shaw. Josh, say hi. Feels kind of not spooky when we record this episode for me because it's 75 in October. It's kind of a trip right now here in New Hampshire. I, I, uh, what's the weather like in Colorado? Funny enough, um, we just got our first snow last night. Nothing like crazy. It's like a, a little dusting. But um, yeah, it is kind of strange. All, all the leaves are gone. So, the leaves are gone. <laughs> it's all the leaves are brown. <laughs> oh, whoops. Whoops. Yeah, like it's weird that we're wrapping up spooky season and it does not feel spooky at all in the slightest as we record it. That's the one like bad thing about the way we have to do this is like we pre record shows like days ahead of time. So it's not like I'm in the Halloween vibe kind of. I have to like manufacture it a little bit. I'm in like a, mm. a short sleeve button up in shorts and not like a sweatshirt, like fearing like, oh, this would be good protection if I get stabbed. Yeah, yeah, you know, one thing that'll kind of elevate this episode, though, in that regards, is it is releasing. Audience will be hearing this on uh, October 31st, which is the actual Halloween day, which will be pretty cool. I'm glad we planned it out that way. Completely unintentionally, but, you know, we'll take credit for it. I mean, mostly unintentionally was more like we released on Tuesdays, as everyone knows, and I looked at the calendar. And I was like, oh, hey, Nick, did you realize <laughs> the last episode of the Halloween one is on Halloween? That's funny, huh? Yeah, and you know, this week I had like maybe like a half strike of like, hey, let's put in some effort, you know, like maybe, you know, I'll hop into the editing bay and I'll switch up the theme song and I'll like create a little spooky theme song. And then I was like, you know what, that's going to be like two and a half, three hours of my day that I just don't have to give away right now. <laughs> I will say, I, I mean, before we get into um, the movie, it follows this week. I feel like our Halloween picks or October picks have like really stepped up from last year. I feel like we didn't do a lot of spooky movies last year. 
No, we were still young when we were just getting our footing last year. Like, I think by October, we had only been doing the cast for probably two or three months. So we were like, well, maybe we need to do something different and have a game show element. And I think, like, I think October we did a game show and we did Hellraiser 3, which is <laughs> two interesting which, picks. We could have done better on, like, trying to scare the audience a little bit more. I'm going back to the archives right now. So we started October with Hellraiser 3. Pretty good. You know, we fit the theme. Sure. Uh, and then we went to Jackie Brown. We went to Jackie Brown next. Um, <laughs> so mistakes may have been made. And then for some reason, we went to Caddyshack, which I love that episode. I mean, it's a horrific movie because it's awful, and I don't know why people like it, but it's not a very scary movie. And then we did no. close it out with the with the Halloween special. Yeah, we definitely stepped up our game this year. I think it's a trend that'll probably continue into 2024. I really enjoyed it, and I you picked a movie that genuinely genuinely scares me. I was very impressed with The Witch. You know, I hadn't seen it in a while. Got me with the same jump scare that it always gets me with. Still creepy ass atmosphere. So, um, hopefully, I can live up to that potential as we close out this week and we close out this month of spooky season with uh, 2014's It Follows, directed by David Robert Mitchell. Uh, I want to tell you, you did your mission because I had not seen this movie before and it did scare me, which is interesting because when we talked pre-show, you said this did not scare you as much as the first time you saw it. It had the complete inverse effect of the witch. Yeah. I was like, I don't know. And like, well, yeah, well, because I don't know. I saw this, I guess we can just jump into this part of the show to begin with. Uh, First time I saw this movie, it was a dark, dreary night. It was rainy. I was home alone at my first apartment, and uh, Jake was working nights at the bar, long-time listener, friend of the show, so I popped this on. And, like, th- again, there was a jump scare in this movie that has I thought about ever since I saw the movie. And then I went back and I watched it, and I don't know if it was maybe the production value or maybe some of the tropes that I feel like the movie falls into, which we can get into much later in the show, but I wanted, like, 5% less tr- horror trope and 5% more psychological terror and leaning into this really interesting comp- uh, concept. See, I felt the complete opposite, and maybe it's a thing that I, I feel with this movie, is that when you watch it for the first time, it's really visceral. Like, you have no idea what's coming for you. The way that it is so slow and so methodical is the scariest part about it, I think, when you first watch this, because it's like, that lady or thing, that monster is just walking towards you with no real malice on their face or anything like that. But I feel like, and you can tell me if this is true, when you watch it the second time, and you know it's not going to do anything that scary, it's just walking towards you, it's not that intimidating. Maybe maybe it was something like that. Um, I'm really not certain, because I, when I picked this, I was like, nice, I'm going out with a bang, haha. Um, I'm going to have a good pick here, you know, it's going to be one that actually holds up, it's scary, and I think it does, like, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying this movie doesn't scare me at all, and I don't like it or anything like that, I really had a good time rewatching it, I just, I felt, I felt a little bit, uh, I, because when I was watching, I was like, you know what, it's between this and The Witch for, like, horror movies of that decade, and I just don't think that, like, this and The Witch are probably in the same league, in my opinion. I think this movie does a lot of things interestingly, as I say, I think to start a sentence for the 20th time, this, this, you know, podcast history and probably this episode, but, um, (laughs) it's scary in the sense of like, when you sit down and you think about its ideas, which we'll talk about, it's more, I guess, upsetting is the better word for all of this. And I think scary 
Because when you think about these implications of what this really disease is talking and asking of you, it's just like upsetting to think about. Whereas even the first murder scene, which is traditionally reserved for like the worst death in the movie to really get the audience to be like, oh, crap, the stakes are this high. We can go this far and this bloody and this grotesque. It's a quick cut and it's really effective. And I don't mean to diminish the witch either or the it follows either, but it's a quick cut. The leg is broken. She's clearly dead. That's about it. And that's probably about as scary and as like graphic it gets. Yeah, it's it's so much of the Carpenter school of atmosphere and setting to make the movie creepy than it is the actual scares or the blood or the gore, like you said. Again, I just felt that so much. And maybe it's because I've been watching a lot of Carpenter, too. That might also be part of the problem. But it just, to me, it was like it was almost too much of its influences on its sleeve. Can we talk about that real quick, or do you have that saved for the rest of the show? What part? The John Carpenter of this all. No, you can talk about it. No, I don't care. Okay. I, I mean this in the best way possible, but this is really just Halloween 1978. Like, in the biggest, like, it's a great homage to it, but everything is just like, oh, he loves Halloween. The the setting is uh, a mid, I don't, is it Midwest? Are we calling Detroit the Midwest? Central? Central <laughs> yeah. America? Sure. Yes, yeah, Central America. <laughs> The middle of the country, okay. Uh, a former, like, Titanic, a small town in, the, like, the midst of, like, a Titanic force. Haddonfield, Chicago, this place, Detroit. It's the, it's the suburbs of Detroit. And just, like, the whole vibe, the whole community looks like Haddonfield. The camera moves exactly like it does in Halloween. Incredibly voyeuristic. Incredibly, you know, sh- like, sh- implied, don't show sometimes. Gags kind of sort of thing. It's just, it's very John Carpenter in a good There's way. There's a shot... There's some shot compositions that are one for one from Halloween, you know, like the, yes. the shot of the two walking down the the leaf strewn uh, sidewalk. I mean, that that's Halloween right there, right? So I really like it. I really enjoy it. I think it's a great movie. But I also think what it really does is introduce us to a really great creative who I think we should probably start talking about now. That's David Robert Mitchell. So Robert Mitchell kind of gets his start in the film industry pretty linear fashion. He's an FSU film graduate. He moves out to L.A. to work in the film industry as an editor in movie marketing, and he releases a small indie feature called The Myth of the American Sleepover. This is shot for basically no money. Um, in some of the Reddit posts and in interviews, Mitchell jokes that he doesn't even have a dolly most days when they're on set. So <laughs> he's really kind of just <laughs> working on a shoestring budget here. Um, movie kind of comes and goes. It's not really a huge hit or anything like that. From everything that I've read and all accounts, it seems like it's kind of a little bit boring, but it is a really good coming-of-age story, and it introduces us to somebody who has a great ear for naturalistic dialogue. Uh, Josh, have you ever seen this? It's a coming-of-age flick. takes place over a summer. probably has at least 10 scenes where someone delivers dialogue more than six lines. Like, I feel like this movie was made for you. No, I think <laughs> I think if I was born a decade earlier, I would have seen this movie and probably gushed about it to you the way I do a lot of the movies that I gush about to you. I'm like, you got to watch this movie, Nick. It's really good. And then you watch it, you're like, that's really talky. And I'm like, yeah, but it's it's lovely, isn't it? And you're like, oh, you know, sure. Yeah, but sure, the part man, where, they, where, where they talk about how much they love each other and it, then they say it and stuff, it's really great. Did you watch that part? Yeah, I think this is like, 
Last Generation Shithouse, Cooper Rave Shithouse, which is a movie that I really, really love mm. and I, I think I've recommended to you, which is just a bare bones coming of age story about kids in, in a situation. Um, and I have not seen this movie, and I, I probably will now that I know that it's a talky movie. But I will say in the research that you and I have done in this episode, it seems like this is instrumental thematically in David Robert Mitchell's whole filmography. Yeah, totally. Um, this movie, it follows as a coming-of-age tale wrapped in a horror movie, right? I mean, I think that's – I think there's a really huge reading where this is an STD movie or an AIDS movie, and we'll get into that later in the show. But to me, this is about the inescapable, ever-churning process that is death. Yes, in the myth of the American sleepover, when you read like the plot synopsis on Wikipedia, it's mostly about kids trying to decide, should we have sex, should we not have sex – and I think it's dealing a lot with like high school graduation. And ultimately, the kids decide we, before we go off to college, we will not have sex. We'll maintain our innocence. Whereas it mm-hmm. follows immediately is like, oh, let's bang, which kind of tells you immediately where David, you know, Robert Mitchell's mind is at when he's making it follows. No doubt. No doubt. Um, so it follows is kind of born out of a feeling that I know Josh and I have both had. Um, and I'm going through it currently. And that's writer's block. You know, Mitchell is trying to break his second feature. The script is going nowhere, and he's just kind of spinning his wheels. So he's kind of had it follows in a drawer off to itself for, for quite a while. He decides to pivot his focus to that full time, and it draws in for, and it draws inspiration from a recurring dream he would have as a child about being followed by an unknown entity. What's pretty cool about this episode, I'll just say this now. You know, usually it's a conglomerate of you know conjecture and a couple quotes here and there. Um, but the cool thing is, is David Robert Mitchell went on Reddit and answered a bunch of people's questions on an AMA thread, which is really cool. It's a rare Reddit W. Always love when our favorite creatives do this. PTA's done it. Alex Garland, Big Jim Cameron, Annie Boyle, etc. So um, if you ever want to read that archive, it's really interesting. I used it for a lot of this information. Um, but this quote was directly based on the nightmare he had. He says... In it, I was followed by this thing that I knew to be a monster, and it looked like, it sometimes looked like people that I knew, or sometimes looked like strangers, and it was very slow, and always walking towards me. It was easy to get away from, but it was the feeling of always being followed that was incredibly disturbing and the inspiration for this film. I didn't use those images for the film, but the basic idea and the feeling I used. From what I understand, it's an anxiety dream. Whatever I was going through at that time, my parents divorced when I was around that age, so I imagine it was something to do with that. Now, Josh, are you a big dreamer or nightmare guy? Um, I don't have a lot of nightmares, but I will have a lot of like weird dreams I forget in the morning. But when I wake, wake up in the morning, I'm like, huh, that was weird. The one dream that's always stuck with me for whatever reason, it's not it's it, <laughs> I don't want to say it's not scary, but essentially whatever it was. I was in the basement and my family was all tied up by this like evil person. And I was hiding behind like a pillar. And I was like, well, I'll go save my family or whatever. And me being me, I fucked up. <laughs> and the, the the bad person was like, oh, there he is. And I was like, oh, no. And I, I <laughs> turned to run. But like he shoots a gun at me as I'm running, but nothing actually happens. It's like a tickle like on my back. And I'm like, ooh, that's weird. And then I just that's kept weird. running. And the dream ends. But most of my dreams, for example, are... um. Last night I had a dream that Wolverine was in my driveway and he like woke up and I was like, oh, Wolverine, what are you doing here? He's like, I don't know. And I'm like, oh my God, it's voiced by Steve Blump. It's the Steve Blump Wolverine from the animated shows. 
and then I woke up, and that's like that's not film worthy, like David Robert Mitchell's. You woke up and went, oh, oh. <laughs> but anyways, <laughs> are you? Um, I know you don't. You don't enjoy. You don't sleep much. But when you do sleep, do you dream? I I have trouble sleeping. Yes, um, but I I do have dreams. But to me, they always seem to be like psychologically linked to like um, being incapacitated. Like I can't punch or I can't run. I can't grab onto the things I'm trying to grab onto. It's always like something like that where I can kind of like maybe psychologically wrap my mind around, but I have had those dreams too that just make absolutely no sense. There's no correlation between them. And you're just, you wake up and you're like, what happened there? You know, like, where was I, what was going on? Um, and that's the way that this movie kind of feels to me at times. It's very disorienting. And I kind of like to talk about that now, just while we're here, you can really feel like that there's no sense of true time in this movie, you know, whether it be the technology that people are using, the cars they're driving, the design of the interiors of the house. It's very, very like disarming, but disorienting at the same time where all of these places feel like they're out of time. There's like this kind of dusty suburban surrealism to it, um, which is a huge part of David Robert Mitchell's creative process, as we'll get into shortly. But I, I always notice that part of the movie that feels so much like a dream to me. Well, there's also just like weird things in the set, like the girl, the little girl who has like a circular phone that she's reading Dojchayevsky on. It's like, what? <laughs> like, excuse me? I've never seen a phone or a reader like that before ever. And let alone a 13, whatever how old she is reading, you know, the idiot. Yeah. And a lot of analog technology, like old speakers, old TVs old living rooms. Um, I, I really find that part of the movie to be just like, you, you, you can't really get a strong footing as to where you are and what time period it takes in. So just an interesting part of that. Um, but let's get back to production history. Mitchell was reluctant to discuss the concept of the film with others, finding it to be the dumbest thing ever when he said it aloud. Um, I kind of have to partially agree with him here. Some things are just better left unsaid. And I think this script just kind of speaks for itself. <laughs> There's also the feeling of when you're writing something as you and I have is like the second you voice it out loud and you try to rationalize it or explain it, you either feel like an idiot or like the mystique of what you have is gone because now it's shared and now there's like an expectation. You know, not that mm -hmm. I'm or you are, you know, Eric Roth who just wrote Killers of the Flower Moon. But when I text you like, oh, I'm writing something, you're like, oh, cool, let me read it when you have it. And then I'm like, oh, well, now I have to finish it and then I have to send it. And now I'm writing in the back of my head like, oh, what does Nick think? So I do really do understand like this feeling of like I cannot tell anyone what I'm writing or anything about it. Yeah. Well, and also it's the minute you tell somebody about it, there's going to be somebody else's expectations attached to it. The intimate part about writing something, for me at least, is just completely writing something for yourself in a dark room or with a candle lit or a nice glass of wine or whiskey. And you're just it's you and a laptop or you and a piece of paper and a pen. Those are my favorite moments of creative process but they're also the most isolating and mind rattling and i think this also explains a lot of it follows where when you have david robert mitchell who is working exclusively in isolation and not telling anyone about the story and doing a, a writing experience which is probably not fun and number two you're just in a dark room by yourself exactly what you're talking about it leads to these weirder more elusive ideas and like concepts because it is naturally you not hearing input from anyone else, but you're just in that mindset all by yourself, just confined to it. 
there's a constant question I'm asking myself when I'm writing, and I mean constant, like almost every single line. What am I trying to say? What am I trying to say? And I think, like you said, when you're by yourself and you're kind of left to your own devices at times, that can be where some of the brightest stuff comes from when you're asking yourself, what do you want to say? can also be where some of the most dark psychological, you know, tormented stuff can come from that you want to say. And I think this movie kind of captures that. <laughs> and then especially when it's like, I, I'm not talking to any of my friends about like, hey, I got this one scene and I'm kind of stuck on what do you think, which is David Robert Mitchell's case. He's exclusively just like, what am I trying to say? I'm stuck to myself and I guess I'll just go deeper into this. There's a lot of stuff where it feels like what's the most interesting, darker turn that I could take with this movie in an interesting way. And that's just where the script goes rather than what it might go naturally in a more like vanilla person's mind. Right. Yeah. You're not kind of forcing the puzzle pieces as much. Um, but the sexually transmitted nature of the monster came later in development. Mitchell wanted something that was transferable from human to human, but still had the ability to be undetected. Hence the reason the monster is just whomever has been afflicted. Uh, I think we should probably talk about that now. Just about like the designs of the monsters and stuff like that. Yes. Uh, really unsettling. Yeah. The, the worst part about it is that it's pretty much anyone or anything exactly like David Robert Mitchell said, where it's just like, it's an old woman who looks horrifying as she just walked into the college campus like, hello. Well, she's not even saying anything. I don't know why I made her just say something. But like <laughs> the way she's just like falling and then the little kid that's in the boathouse that is a callback to the little kid we saw earlier. It's like, well, is that the little kid being creepy again? Is it? Is it the monster? I don't know. Or just like the scariest part to me at least is there's two instances where it becomes the parents. It becomes Greg's parents and then it becomes Jay's parent or her father. Mm -hmm. And that part is the really upsetting, gross, weird part of it. Yes, that one's really gross and weird. I also think the fact that it can transform into your friends, like you said, not just your family members. You know, there's a part of the beach where it transforms into one of the group members and they wind up shooting it in the neck. And it's like, it would be so like terrifying and jarring to have that like be your friend. You know what I mean? I, I, I think that's a really cool concept they play with where it's such a malleable thing. Again, straight Carpenter ripoff to me personally with the thing a little bit, but you know, really cool concept. <laughs> But I think what makes it a little interesting to me is that the thing is taking over the entire body and spirit <clears throat> of someone and encompassing it for its own purposeful desires. It is literally just taking it all over, whereas this monster is not trying to, like, convince you it's your friend. It's not trying to, like, inhabit this person and be like, oh, I'm speaking and acting like them. It's literally there's no just masking. Like, there's no masking. It's literally just like, I'm just what I have to be to try and get close to you so I can murder you. And not even attempt to like make it up for it or just convey like something else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you can, you uh, can read. Sorry, I, I don't want to interrupt you, but like, no, 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 go. You can read or try to read the intentions of the monster and the thing or try and find a reason why, right? But with this movie, I can't find a single motive. It's, it's less motiveless than Michael Myers to me. Yeah, just a mind. Well, it, that's because it's symbolic of something, which we'll get into later in the show. Um, so a main visual inspiration for Mitchell and cinematographer Mike Gilakis, that's my best attempt at that last name, was the work of photographer Gregory Crudson. Now, I kind of want to stop here for a minute and, and just talk about a different form of creativity here. 
Uh, we don't really talk about still photographers or photography in general outside of films usually. So I think this is a really good time to kind of address something that's a huge part of the creative process that kind of goes underrated. So Gregory Crudson is a still photographer based out of Western Massachusetts who makes large scale cinematic psychologically charged prints of stage scenes set in suburban landscapes and interiors. Um, he directs a large production and lighting crew to construct his images, pretty much equivalent to a film set. The shots are elaborately planned for months, sometimes years, and usually call for a large film-esque budget. Almost all of his work takes place in Western Mass and small towns. Um, he's most widely known for his bodies of work like Twilight, Beneath the Roses, Cathedral of the Pines, and An Eclipse of Moss. If anybody's interested after this episode and wants to learn more about his work, there's also a documentary out called Gregory Crudson, Brief Encounters, which I have on my watch list. His work is mesmerizing. I looked through his prints and kind of found myself entranced to the point I'd buy one of his books. There's always this looming sense that it's an all off-kilter, surrealist dream that at any time may warp into a nightmare. You know, you don't really feel safe in any of these photos. Um, there's the heavy fog in every photo or the odd objects and people in settings where they just don't belong. Um, there's one where, like, there's somebody's on a hospital gurney in the middle of a field, just really kind of strange, abstract images. Um, but really interesting composition. Um, background, middle ground, foreground, like we've talked about here. But it very much aligns with Mitchell's nightmare kind of hallucinatory feelings towards his subject material and kind of his leanings of what American suburbia looks like. Um, this is something to me that separates the goods from the greats. You know, Robert Eggert's talking about being influenced by expressionistic paintings for Nosferatu. It's just like being inspired by films is cool, but some of the best visual storytellers, whether it's Jim Jarmusch, Michael Mann, or Stanley Kubrick, their original captivation with film is still photography of objects of their surroundings that you would otherwise pass as banal. There's a specificity to looking through still photographs and understanding which each separate image is after. Uh, I think it allows the director to have a stronger sense of framing or location, aesthetic, what have you. Um, I think we lose by just watching films constantly because even the best films at times can become a pattern. Um, this was an inspiration to me personally reading about this to start kind of pushing myself out of the familiar comfort zones of film and study still photography and paintings more to kind of up my craft personally. Yeah, so I am looking at his photos now, and they are all haunting to some degree, which I think is the, the most impressive thing about them, is how do you convey just, like, scariness or, like, a, an ill-boding feeling in just a photograph? Because when you look at, like, the scariest pictures of all time, you'll get a lot of, like, there's a face in that window. Oh, my God, watch out. Whereas the scariest mm -hmm. one to me right now is there's this woman floating in the first floor of her house while everything else is just underwater and they're just like is she dead was there a flood and it also conveys a thing that robert mitchell really is into which is vagueness which is that when you mm. look at these still photos you have no idea about extra context other than what's in front of you you really have to make one up as you go i'm looking at another one right now of a guy at the end of his driveway and there's a giant light on him is that light from a helicopter? Is that light from an alien? Is he imagining that light? All these sort of questions, which it follows, as we'll talk about, is riddled in, in questions and in interpretation and which context do you make out of which thing. And so I think he gets as much of the like photography or photography, cinematography ideas as he does the, the narrative kind of mystique of this movie. Yeah, and again, what we kind of talked about as far as like set design, right? You can't really tell what time period those photos are after. You know, they they seem to be almost like baked into like this 
set time period but you also are like well wait a minute like in the background there's a digital clock so like what's going on here you know there's a very um there's a clash of time periods and that happens in this movie a lot and i think that that's that to me was one of the big things i also pulled from him it's like oh the kind of um surrealist time capsule of american suburbia like from different generations almost like a collage at some at some points yeah, and they're all, I think, another thing is being set in Western Mass, and, and they're mostly like suburban areas of Western Mass. It follows look, has to be a little bit blended by that. I know David Robert Mitchell grew up in Detroit, and it was important to him to kind of go up into the suburbs thematically and narratively and personally. But these paintings also are in the suburbs, and I don't think that's a mistake as if you're consciously looking at these pictures and this kind of mood that, you know, um, Crudson kind of sets. And you're like, oh, that's suburban. This is a suburban environment. That's a suburban environment. It must consciously or unconsciously seep into your actual fabric as a writer. Totally. Citing George A. Romero and John Carpenter, spoiler, as influences on composition and aesthetic, Mitchell used wide-angle lenses to give the film an expansive look, which feeds well into our next point here, that Mitchell knew from the beginning that he wanted to shoot the film in Detroit where he is from. Mitchell on this concept. I wrote it specifically for Detroit in the metro Detroit suburbs. It's where I grew up and the locations have personal meaning for me. And the divide that exists between the city and the suburbs was an important thematic element in the story. I wanted to, in some way, show the very shitty separation that exists between these places in regards to both wealth and race. Good time to talk about uh, one of the performances in the movie, Hugh, I think, that kind of fits this concept really well. Um, in the beginning, when we're introduced to this character, he's using a fake name. He doesn't let uh, Jay, the main character, see his home at all, and then she knows where he lives, and we go to find that he lives in kind of the slum, but he actually really doesn't live there. He lives in a pretty nice neighborhood, he's got two parents who love him, he's not kind of the hard-ass that he portrays himself to be, so it's a really cool switch of perspective there, and I think that that's kind of, um, I don't know if that's a, a play on something where it's like, you know, we all kind of, uh, whether it be the pop culture references we have or the music we listen to, we kind of take that on as our image and ourself because it does seem to be speak on something more than just the fact that he's trying to like evade her finding out where he lives, really. Just kind of an interesting uh, clash of, of classes there. Well, there's also an issue with Hugh of when you open this idea of why does he choose Jay over someone else that he actually knows? Is there a socioeconomic lens to view that as? Whereas this wealthy suburban kid from a good environment is purposely going to this, I would say, more less affluent, poor region and going, oh, that's where I will find the girl that I can pass this on to. And mm-hmm. he, I don't think he was a malicious person in that regard. So I don't think it's this like 10,000 IQ play of, of thematic no, you know, rich guy coming down on it. He, I, I believe Hugh when he's like, "I'm sorry, you have to understand." And he does what you know, fairly what Jay does not do, which is say to the people, "Hey, there's this monster that's going to come after you, and you have to like take care of yourself and watch out for yourself." Or guess what? You're dead. You know, Jay doesn't do that to anyone. <laughs> Jay is just like, "Hey, uh, they're dead, so see ya." Yeah, we can talk about Jay later. She she moves on pretty quickly about uh, uh, quite a few people in this movie. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> but I, I think there is something to that choice of like richer white guy picks poorer white girl to then carry his burdens or her his burdens for him. 100%. 
Um, so while we're on the topic of performances, let's just get into it here. This is a pretty thin week. I don't have a ton for casting. I don't have a ton for production. Um, so I think we'll probably just, again, talk about actual performances. Uh, Micah Monroe. I think she's really good in this. I mean, she's fucking losing it in the house that first time when the window gets broken and it starts making its way through and she locks herself in the room. Those are like real tears. I really buy that. She also has this cold streak. You know, when she sleeps with George, that kind of makes you almost think she's a little psycho the way she goes about it. Um, She's gone on to do some good stuff, but I don't think it's gotten much better than this. She's in the Josh Devin favorite, The Guest. Um, There's Hot Summer Nights. The biggest movie to date she's a part of is probably the abysmal Independence Day sequel. But I think she's a very good scream queen in this. Yeah, Devin and I went really deep on her filmography and like kind of her career and and what kind of went wrong and everything like that. So if you're really interested in that, go listen to the guest episode, skip around wherever you want, and eventually you'll find it. Uh, So I don't want to like belabor the point too much, but I am curious to you, Nick, like she does a lot of interesting movies and like after the guest and it follows, which are both 2014. And then after that, she books Independence Day. She books Hot Summer Nights. She's then in, in um, After Everything, which is a really good indie, which she's great in. And then she's in Greta, which feels like a little more of a prominent horror movie. And then she's in a Villains, which is really good, too. But ever since then, it feels like she's just kind of been stuck in this general area of, like, okay, pretty good, but underseen horror movies that no one really wants to talk about. It's it's bad that this happens. I mean, we can talk about Jamie Lee Curtis, right? The reason she's in the fog is because John Carpenter felt bad that her career hadn't played out to that point the way that she had planned. Um, so yeah. it does seem like whether it's the mid-2000s or 1970, typecasting is a thing. If you're great at something, they're going to try and get you to do it again. you know. And if you're affordable, they're really going to try and get you to do it again. And I think somebody like Micah Monroe doesn't have the same cachet as some of the other people we've probably mentioned on the show during spooky season, a la Anya Taylor-Joy, or whoever it may be, to kind of um, break out of that mold. I hope so. I think she's really talented. Um, I just, again, I'm so used to seeing her do these things that it would be interesting, but also difficult for me to kind of imagine her in, in like a, as Priscilla, you know, for example. Ah, Priscilla. <laughs> See, but that's the problem, right? Is I think she's great at all this stuff, but and we talked about this a lot in the guest episode. I won't belabor this point either. But she does not. She's not Margot Robbie. She doesn't have that like appearance in a bad way. And I don't mean that like she's not attractive. She's a beautiful woman, but she is not coming. She's very tomboyish, you know. Like she's got like this alt kind of look and vibe as an actress that kind of unfortunately can maroon her in these types of roles just reoccurringly. Yeah, as as we've talked about many times on the show, the Hollywood system is a is a rotten egg. That said, I, I already mentioned it, but if you want to go see her in a different, just like drama, go watch After Everything. It's terrific. I'm surprised the movie, ha- like the the film Twitter, hasn't gone onto it already. It's it's ready for this cast, Nick. It's Jeremy Allen White, the the hottest guy that everyone loves now, as a cancer patient who meets Micah Monroe and falls in love with her. And then it's about how does her relationship kind of come and go as he battles through cancer. Marissa Tomei's in it as a therapist. Micah Monroe is is the co-lead. Uh, Joe Keery's in it from <laughs> Stranger Things. I'm shocked that no one's going to be like, hey, this movie's awesome. But like no one has talked about it since I watched it. 
it's been in our rundown document or our schedule document for, since yes. the inception of this podcast, you know, and I still have yet to see it. So I think you're just going to have to pick it one week. We're, we're the only podcast that's <laughs> going to have done three movies by Micah Monroe. <laughs> we're now the Micah Monroe dogs. Yeah, dude. Well, next October, we're just doing <laughs> Micah Monroe movies. <laughs> All right. Independence Day uh, Resurgence, Hot Summer Nights, I'm Not Here, The Tries of Palos Verdes, let's go. <laughs> uh, let's talk about Jake Weary, who plays Hugh. Uh, I, I think it's really cool reveal that he's actually just the same as these other suburbanites uh, instead of a poor kid from the hood like we talked about. I think that's more the brilliant storytelling of David Robert Mitchell's part. But he plays the transition well enough. You know, nothing crazy. His biggest thing is hopping on Chicago Fire and then getting a lead role in Animal Kingdom for, like, 72 episodes. And, like, we all know the drill there. Like, if you're on one of those shows, you're on it till the end or they kill you off. So there's not a ton of film work, as it appears. He's kind of become part of the TV machine going forward. But I think this is a pretty solid performance. You know, a lot of these people in this movie, this is their, like, second to fourth role. If sometimes they're first. And I think all the, you know, kind of kid performances or younger adult performances are really well done. Jake Weary is really good, and I did not realize he's the guy I've seen in, like, countless Animal Kingdom ads before I go to the movies. We're like, I don't know. By you, do you see, like, a ton of... I used to see, like, a ton of Animal Kingdom, like, trailers and ads before a movie would start. Like, at the movie theater? Yeah, they'd be like, next next season on Animal Kingdom, the family's up to some crazy stuff again. It's like, it's like a crime whatever show about, like, surfer criminal family i don't know it, it looked kind of goofy but australia like, yeah yeah well i think it was based on an australian thing and now it's like the american remake Ooh. Um, oh gotcha but he's really good in this and, and it's kind of a shame that he spent you know i think seven seasons on that show i mean you get what you want you get a great paycheck and that's stable stuff for seven years of your career that's good but it would be nice to see him break out i mean he's really good I do not to trust him the second I saw him with the earring, though, and that jacket. I was like, this dude, you can't trust. Like you said, there is there is an earnest point to him. You know, I don't want to spoil part of his dialogue that I think is crucial to the film, but he does have like kind of a nice streak. And I also think that scene where that girl's walking in the background to soccer practice is great, 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 great stuff. The way they show her from far away, no one really knows her. She gets closer and he starts freaking out and he just goes, do you guys see that? Do you guys see that girl right there? And the fact that they see her notifies the group and us as the audience that she's normal. This movie has some really great exposition, too. Can we just talk about that real fast? Because he's involved in it. Yeah, let's talk about it. That opening sequence, the first time that like we're kind of brought into the world of It Follows, where he puts her in the wheelchair and kind of like brings her over to the edge of that like really weird setup parking garage. Again, just a completely disorienting movie with its locations. In like go to the edge of the bridge and she sees it it's so brilliant the exposition the way he just kind of like runs down the list of things like it'll follow you it never stops you can't kill it like you have to watch your back at all times like the way he kind of breaks down the exposition there i just think is awesome and like as the audience we don't need to know anything more than that that's 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 it it's a great turn of like having this character completely subvert our expectations where the movie starts and we probably think he'll be the first victim of this and then it's going to go after her for whatever reason because we don't know the whole plot yet. But by immediately throwing it off to be like, he's not who he seems. This situation is not what it seems. And we can also now, because we had that relationship with him beforehand, 
were invested in this kind of story more. This is like, oh, this character that I liked five minutes ago is actually scared and is trying to do a decent thing. Then I'm more willing to pay attention to hear him out rather than just dismiss him as like a crazy person. Yeah, also kind of subvert your expectations too, because when he like, you know, knocks her out in the back of the car, you're like, this guy's a piece of shit. Like, he's going to yes. kill her. Or he's the monster. Does a really good job of kind of keeping you off balance in that regard too. And and never feeling too like I, I don't want to I don't know how to say this, but like he just comes across as like he genuinely does care for her despite all the lies he's told her, despite everything else. And I don't think he wants her to die, obviously. Like he's he's really invested in this girl, but he's also playing this really tough balance of I never want to see you again. So it's this weird thing of like his feelings towards her are real, but his desire to have anything more than her are, are completely fabricated. Totally. Totally. Um, there's some other performances in here by some other actors with some other names, but I don't have them and we're not really talking about them. Uh, <laughs> I think Greg's solid in this movie. <laughs> I don't know who plays Greg. Um, all of the, I think what's really cool too, that they do with the adults is the parents are kind of like either doing something or they're asleep, hammered. They're off to the corner in the table, you know, just looking straight ahead, completely ignoring their kids, not really paying attention. It does this great job of subtracting all of the adults out of this world. Again, just a really great surreal layered move by David Robert Mitchell. Did you at all feel like you were watching like a Charlie Brown, it follows movie because all the adults were so off camera. That's the music that plays at the end of the movie. <laughs> yeah, they're like, "Mom, mom, you gotta help Jane." You hear, pretty much. <laughs> I will say one last note on casting is the thing that I found really effective when I was watching this movie is that the actors cast actually look like teenagers, and they feel like teenagers, and they feel more like little kids, quite honestly. Like when um, Paul and her sister are out there with the other friend just playing cards. They all look so young. And there is really that feeling of like, oh man, these are just like poor kids trapped in this awful situation. Whereas you watch a lot of horror stuff set in high school. It's like that dude's 25. <laughs> yeah, he has a full beard. Yeah, and when I don't feel the same well of innocence towards the the actor and the character by, you know, kind of extension... I'm not as afraid for them because I'm like, oh, well, you know, it's fake. It's definitely not a high school student. But like the kid who plays Paul looks so young in this movie, especially that I'm like, oh, man, I that dude looks like he's 14. Like someone look out for him. And they're, they're really like age appropriate dressed. Like I think, like you said, sometimes yes. those movies that have older actors playing people in high school go super over the top with the wardrobe. Right. It's like we have to look cutting edge like the way kids dress nowadays and it's like well not necessarily because not everybody everybody dresses that way and this movie does a good job of varying everybody's wardrobe which also says something about the character you know hugh when we first meet him has a leather jacket on kind of looks like a tough guy and then again we meet him at his parents house he's in a nice like button up henley he's got jeans on you know nice sneakers he doesn't look like a like a hoodlum yeah. you know he doesn't look like a like a like a vagabond as much so like um, I also think like Jay's wardrobe, how she's in white a lot of the time, which is obviously supposed to try and capture her innocence and stuff like that. Very smart design in that way. Not basically just like how trendy can we be to make these guys look young? Yes, yeah, absolutely. And like everything about this just feels so real and grounded in in a really scary way of, of I don't feel like 
the monster itself is definitely fake, but everything around it feels so real. And, and it doesn't ever feel like the monster does this thing where, oh, and now it's going to transform into this giant tentacle monster that's going to really reveal its true form. It's this like eldritch horror that is just something you see and something you know that I'm never thrown out of the movie or the situation. Uh, as always, we like to break down a film from production, casting, box office. So that's where we're at now here for It Follows. It Follows had its premiere at the Cannes Film Festival on May 17, 2014. I don't know. Is it weird to me that this premiered at Cannes? There's been plenty of horror there since like the mid to late 90s. But this feels like such an unknown outsider making an outsider horror movie that I was a little surprised to see that it played there at all. Yeah, this is weird because it's not like... <laughs> I mean, in some instances, you can get like a director that makes three or four really good independent movies that maybe make some money. And then gradually it's like, oh, the the cred has kind of like come its way. But David Robert Mitchell, like we said, the myth of the American Sleepover is 2010. It's been four years. That's the only movie he's made before this. And that movie came and went completely. So how he gets to Cannes, I, I, I'm really kind of impressed by. It's amazing. Like you said, you know, a small independent feature that, you know, and I'm not trying to crap on it. It could be a very good movie is we've seen a hundred times. We've talked about Dazed and Confused on the show. We've talked about American Graffiti before. It's not like it's a really an expressive original story. I wonder if they saw this and saw the potential of, of exactly what I just said of like kind of like, oh, OK, this is a. Because there's no denying, as we'll get to once he makes this and under the Silver Lake, this is a diverse very talented auteur that we have with an extremely like unique vision. But at this point, like you said, there's really not the cachet there. It's not like he's been to con before and he's released a couple movies and he has the buzz. So I just found it kind of interesting that this premiered there. Yeah. Um, I, I, I we will push back on this later, I think for me, but I don't know if I'm the biggest David Robert Mitchell fan the way you are. Um, but I, mm. I do think it's really, really interesting his career and when we get to under the silver lake eventually, which I think is, is a vital conversation because look, it is, this isn't a director where we can do, Oh, we'll come back to under the silver lake. Cause there's so much kind of content in his career to kind of navigate around. Um, <laughs> he's made three movies, two of which we've all seen. So while we're here, we might as well talk about it eventually. Yeah. Under the silver lake is going to be a key part of this conversation going forward. And I think it actually connects it follows, um, but it follows makes 23.3 million on a $1.3 million budget. That's insane given its first week was a limited run of four theaters. I mean, just great numbers. Also, this movie is on Netflix now, so if you want to see it, check it out. It's kind of become... Um, it's blown up. There's really no other way, like, fancy way that I can put that in, like, some cool podcaster term. It's just, it's blown up. It's a movie that's been seen by a lot of people, made on the cheap, just as a lot of horror films are, not a lot of, like, huge stars. And now, you know, you ask people if they've seen it, follows. More than likely, they're going to tell you, yeah, I've seen it. Is this for you, and, and we haven't actually brought this up, and I haven't even mentioned this in the pre-show notes, but, like, is this to you one of the early movies of the the kind of pretentious, in a good way, elevated horror thing? Yes, but it's picked up by dimension, and that's the huge crux of this problem. And I think we'd be irresponsible not to talk about who owned it and what that has on the history for film going forward. Um, which brings us to our conversation points. So great job, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> I swear to God, 
I'm one week away from adding a category to the show called director who had the world by the balls and now we don't know where he's at or what the fuck he's doing. Mitchell drops under the Silver Lake in 2018. And I think that may be one of the more divisive movies of the last 15 years. Let's just get it out of the way now. There are those who love it and think it's one of the best films of that decade, me, and those who find it to be a message mired in confusion and kind of unmarketable even though it has a great Andrew Garfield, which is A24 and also me. Um, but I think there's no denying between these two films that Mitchell is a full-blown auteur with a new unique ability to blend genre. Maybe we can chalk up a lot of his inactivity to COVID, but I've got a Bobby Mitchell-shaped hole in my hat that needs fixing, which should happen soon. Mitchell's next project is, uh, uh, well, it's a dinosaur movie. <laughs> it's going to be a bad robot production. It will be shot on IMAX cameras. It's going to star Anne Hathaway, and Oscar Isaac has been offered the lead male role. It's called Flower Veil Street. And it's supposedly an 80s dinosaur period piece. Details are scarce, but needless to say, Mitchell is upping a scope. I hope the vision stays uncompromised with some bigger chefs in the kitchen now. Like with so many people making movies nowadays and so many studios putting out, you know, films and other TV shows, there's something that makes my ears perk up when an auteur as diverse as Mitchell or Robert Eggers or a lot of other the creatives we talk about on the show are dropping a new project. Sorry, my, my thing kind of... There's a lot to unpack here, Nick. <laughs> There's a lot. You want to start with Under the Silver Lake? Let's start with Under the Silver Lake. Um, I've seen it. I enjoyed it the first time I watched it. Um, but I, I don't think I've returned to it since. And I don't really have a drive to return to it. I think it is really interesting and really compelling. And I blame part of my reaction to it, probably to like my age and my lack of attention I probably gave it at the time. Because, I, I mean, look, when you're 18, whatever, how old I was when I watched it, I don't know if I'm going to, like, all right, full media literacy cap is on when I'm watching The Silver Lake. I put it on more as, like, man, I love Andrew Garfield. He's the lead in this movie. I've heard good things. Let's kind of watch it and put it on. But I think it's I think it's good, but I think it's also confusingly and needlessly confusing. It's, I think it's one of the best films of that decade. I'll, I'll stand by that. Um I, th- I agree with you, but I think it's just it's it's a borderline unmarketable film, and that's with a, in my opinion, a top five performance by Andrew Garfield. And A twenty four felt the same way. This movie was supposed to be re- released theatrically, also premiered at Cannes, Cannes Film Festival. It's delayed for a theatrical run, you know, by a month, and then like, okay, well, now that we've kind of come out of Cannes, maybe we've got a little bit of buzz, and it came out with pretty divisive reviews. Right, there are those again who really liked it, and there are those who think it's just a confusing, confusing, bloated mess. Um, goes on to sh- video on demand services after really not getting a theatrical release anywhere after two months. It kind of just lives there, right? I think where it follows got elevated by those things. It's almost a detractor for Under the Silver Lake, which is kind of weird because it's a Andrew Garfield performance and it's his third feature. So you kind of think the building blocks are going to be going up instead of the inverse. But I think. What we need to talk about is that film's content a little bit. Now, we've kind of, we kind of haven't really gotten into this much, but It Follows is produced by Dimension Films, which unfortunately was owned by Harvey Weinstein, notorious piece of shit. Um, Under the Silver Lake deals with a lot of things and themes about selling your soul and being able to try and fight back against a machine that is just indestructible, kind of like It Follows. Um, and I've read some things with David Robert Mitchell where he talks about, now there is a concise and um, clear message in Under the Silver Lake if you really dig deep enough, which might, you know, completely 
disprove the things that I think. But to me, that movie, you know, It Follows makes, like we talked about, $23.3 million. I would feel kind of conflicted if I was making that money for somebody who is a literal, actual demon. And yeah. obviously, I don't think David Robert Mitchell is complicit in any of those things and things like that. Um, but it does make you question a system that you're a part of when you see all these nasty and vile things that other people do to each other, which is a really big concept of that film. So it, to me, it's almost like a commentary on those things and the, the fallout of It Follows. But that could just be me reading into the subtext a little too heavily. Now, I do think that movie deserves reappraisal, and I think it's one of those movies in about five, ten years, people are going to look back on and say, oh, wow, that was a really, really great Andrew Garfield performance. And that's actually an interesting movie. I don't think you're reading too much into it to some degree. Um, I think that movie is definitely concerned with the idea of, of a system behind everything that controls all, and how do they monopolize everything? You know, I've watched a few clips this week in preparation for this conversation. And there's that Topher Grace line where he's playing games with Andrew Garfield and he's like, look at all the things we do to distract ourselves, you know, and that that take our mind off of other things that are at play in the world versus the way it used to be, where you could have time to just go and sit out on a log <laughs> and think about some things in your life. Whereas nowadays it's like, oh, I'll go play, you know, Spider-Man 2 for four hours and just kind of like zone out and conk out. And it really is, you know, to, to reference a, a book and a song that you and I both love. It's like Soma from you know uh brave new mm. world where we are really be given things that are content now to just be like hey don't pay attention to some other things going on in the world and the corporate structure of film look about this shiny thing so i don't think you're off base on that but i do think that movie i think it fails critically or commercially because of its content number one and how hard that is to market because I don't know how you market. How do you market that movie, Nick? Well, again, it's... <sighs> this is such a complex conversation. And, like, I never, like... Sometimes on this podcast, I'm like, yeah, I got a clear, concise answer for you. But with the movie, like, out of the Silver Lake, I, I don't know shit, right? So, to me, I guess, the movie is too much of its inspiration. Again, with kind of like It Follows. It really, really leans heavily into movies that are more like The Conversation, or Chinatown, or, you know, in the heat of the night even, than it is, you know, Drive, or, you know, I, I'm trying to think of another recent noir, neo-noir, that would be kind of comparable. Blade Runner 2049, yeah. Blade Runner 2049, take your pick, right? It's it's much more based in atmosphere and questioning and confusion than it is a clear detective narrative where Andrew Garfield's a, a private eye and he's on the case of this femme fatale or something like that. It has all those tropes, but it's completely taking them and tilting them on their ear. It's not really traditional in any sense when it comes to that genre. So I think like you said, where there are kind of maybe some of the things that are similar to uh, all these other movies that he's inspired, he's inspired by, he is so unique and so fucking weird that it just doesn't really correlate with a general audience. Well, the other part is it follows is a really easy to understand horror movie that's an hour 37 in and out done under the silver lake like we've been talking about really complex, really complicated. I've, I've watched that movie and I've thought about it, you know, this week and I'm like, I don't is he the dog killer? Is he not? Should I like Sam? Should I not? And then you throw in the fact it's two hours and 19 minutes, which looks, it's not a long movie. But for a lot of people to then throw in the added fact of the narrative and then that runtime, 
and then how just weird it comes off. That's why it doesn't work commercially. And and I don't think mm-hmm. it's like the system is going against it so much. I not that you're saying it, but I'm I'm sure some people have thought it. But that's why it doesn't work. It's hard to get people in 2018, which is the height of the superhero box office bullshit stuff, to then go and spend money to go watch Under the Silver Lake, even if Andrew Garfield was Spider-Man. And that's why it doesn't work commercially. But I will say, I, I don't think David Robert Mitchell's like the genius auteur you do. I think he's good, but I think he's only made two two good movies, you know? And as we've talked about, he wears his influences a lot on his sleeves. And when you're, I don't want to say ripping in a bad way, because everyone's ripping off someone. But when you're paying ripping, homage. Yeah, paying homage. Oh, I went to <laughs> Europe. Uh, but when you're, you're homaging as much as he does and the way he shoots stuff and the way he writes stuff, I don't think I can give you that moniker. Because, you know, going back to the Robert Eggers conversation last week, do we have surprise about what he chooses to, like, write and direct all the time, the same tonality he keeps to use? Yeah, it's getting a little like stale, and eventually I might grow tired of it. But I don't think Robert Eggers is like, I don't think he's like anyone else, really. I think he's really a unique guy that writes the weirdest things you can possibly think of. I think he's probably got more in line with foreign movie guys than he does with American authors. Whereas David Robert Mitchell is really just a lot of his influences. I wouldn't disagree with you. Um, I just think, like I said, so many people are making movies and, and they've almost become homogenized, right? Where it's just a carbon cut copy, like we've talked about. I've never seen anybody try and do something like Under the Silver Lake. I think yeah. it follows as a really cool, interesting concept. I haven't seen The Myth of the American Sleepover, but I can assume that I probably have, <laughs> given the, a lot of the <laughs> filmography that I've seen from other directors. But to me, again, just so many people are making movies, and I hate this fucking word. So many people are making quote-unquote content that I think when we get somebody who's interested in doing these weird, off-kilter, unimbalanced characters or imbalanced situations that, like, I'm just – I'm going to gravitate towards it. Whether it is, like you said, not necessarily the best thing ever or he's paying homage quite heavily throughout – you know, I'm really much more entertained by Under the Silver Lake than, you know, I don't know. A season of of a Marvel show or whatever is on TV to watch at this time. So to me, it's just about originality. But also, I do agree with you. There are moments throughout both of these films where I'm like, all right, like you're just doing the conversation. We got it, buddy. You like that movie? <laughs> we get it. You like to do a lot of pans. You pan all the time. I love it. It's super cool. We get it. You can pan. Yes. But I also still want to see him do more work, too. Like, that's the really interesting thing about this conversation is that while I'm not as high on him, I would love to see him make another movie soon because it's been legitimately so long. It's been since Under the Silver Lake, and I, I don't know if that's co- – I, look, I mean, we can say it was COVID. That's fine, and, and I think to some degree that's probably true. But COVID – or 2018 was five years ago now. He's had five years to get a movie together, and he hasn't done it. So maybe that's just the studios. Maybe it's a writing block thing. I don't know. We'll see where he goes as Anne Hathaway project. But I need a little bit more from him at some point before I can like give him the keys to like the film kingdom and be like, you're one of the next guys in kind of the group with the Ari Aster or the Robert Eggers or kind of the whole menagerie that we've talked about so much on the show. Do you know about his um, his superhero thing? 
I've heard about this, but I, I have not done too much research into it. He was working on the script from what I've read. Again, <laughs> this is the part of the podcast that becomes conjecture. <laughs> I was reading <laughs> recently that he had worked on a script during the pandemic called Heroes and Villains, which was basically a superhero film. Um, and it kind of didn't really go anywhere. So I would have been really interested to see like what he would have done with that genre, right? That's a uh, exhausted format where we're really, really kind of bored with what's going on pretty much every single time a new movie comes out. So that would have been a really interesting twist. But then he goes into this, and it's called Flowervale Street. It's made by Bad Robot. Bad Robot did Cloverfield and Cloverfield 10 Cloverfield Lane and things like that. So I do worry again, like we've talked about, like there is this line that he's really rubbing up against to me where it's like imitation versus homage at times where it's like, I don't, I, I want to see you do your weird movie. And I hope that movie's awesome. And I, and I bet it will be really cool and interesting. I'm excited to see it. I love Anne Hathaway. We're both big Oscar Isaac fans if he takes a role. But what's that going to be, right? Like, what is a David Robert Mitchell dinosaur film? Well, it's... <laughs> I think there's going to be a lot of Jurassic Park homages, if I had to guess, you I know? Not. <laughs> the The fear for me is as the strike keeps going on... <laughs> I mean, maybe yeah, not. Yeah, that's the other part. Maybe not. I don't know, because they're having meetings again by the, the weekend that we record this, which is the 28th to the 30th. Hope I know they've been talking for a vast majority this week, and they're trying to make a deal this weekend. If it can get done, awesome. Thank God we're back to work. All this sort of stuff. Not we, whatever. You know what I mean. Screw you. If you're going to be fucking technical. Um, I imagine Anne Hathaway is a pretty busy actress, <laughs> um, and I'm sure she's had some projects delayed due to the strike. Uh, rightfully so. So I'm a little concerned that maybe this gets... It becomes a casualty of it. I don't know. I don't know if, if Bad Robot has the capacity to, that, to survive the strike and then come out of it and then go, here's, I don't know, I, I guess this is a 20 million plus movie for David Robert Mitchell. I don't know. It's actually really something that I thought about too, like yesterday when I was finishing up this document. I didn't put it in the notes or anything, but I was like, how many of these things that we're talking about? I mean, even some of the picks that we made, like Craven's been delayed. When's that coming out? Free Craven. Um, but like, just like we've been talking about how many projects are, like you said, going to be a casualty of like this corporate greed and, and kind of like lustful period. So I hope not, but like you said, you know, do, do we have 20 million to give David Robert Mitchell to make his eighties dinosaur period piece or do we need to, you know? I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's really dark to think about. <laughs> um, <laughs> I would hope so, but I also would not. I don't know. I don't know, Nick. It's it's kind of the scariest thing. I, it's, I'll just go back to saying I don't know because this is the truth at this point. Alrighty. Well, the next thing I think we can talk about is the conflict of sexuality. Smooth uh, transition Mitchell, here, folks. <laughs> Dude, I'm tired. I don't. I don't have it today. I don't have the juice today. Mitchell on the conflict of sexuality. Some people think that the film is just about sex or STDs or AIDS, and I think that's fine. But for me, within the film, sex is a normal part of life. And even though the characters open themselves up to danger through sex, it's the act of living that opens themselves up to danger. And it's sex, and, it's sex and love that, at least temporarily, allow us to live in the moment and keep death at bay. Now, there is an easy way to read this film as an allegory for STDs, and you'd be totally fair in that, in my opinion. But it does feel like a bit of a surface-level reading. To me, this movie is about death and the inescapable force that it is. Um, one of the keys to the movie to me early on is when Hugh and Jay are in the movie theater and he starts a game with her and asks her to pick who he is 
And what I mean by that is he looks into the crowd and says he's somebody, and she has to guess who it is. She gets it wrong, and eventually he tells her that it's a little boy who's playing with like one of the arcade games in the machines. His reasoning is you have your whole life ahead of you. Who does he pick? He picks the kid. I think that's a prime example right there that this movie is really just a movie about coming of age and dealing with these themes of your own mortality and death um, while being disguised as a horror film. And like the other thing too that I'd really like to address too is sex in this movie. It's not really done in a glamorous way and look at where it takes place. It takes place in a hospital. What happens to a hospital? You go to a hospital when you're sick or you're dying. Also the sex in the back of the car. It probably is one of the most melancholic speeches I've ever heard post-coitus. She's like, the saddest part of it all is like, now we're old. Where the hell do we go? You know, like there's just yeah. not normal dialogue for characters to have right after they have sex, which I found to be a really interesting point too. And also this book is a lot of passages from Fyodor Dostoevsky, who I've talked about many times to Josh, Know Your World Literature, from his book, The Idiot. You know, whether it's talking about how you're supposed to reap every part of your life and enjoy it, laughing, crying, um, enjoy your days, whether it's 10 days, 20 months, whatever. So to me, all of those things kind of combined along with the creature and what it does read more like death than I think in actual STD. Also, it's not like after these people have sex, like Josh and I have talked about where they start to become deformed and their noses fall off or their heads explode and they turn into some demon. No. What does it look like? It looks just like you and I, the same thing. Yeah. You know, we've had some, some moments where you put out a theory or I put out a theory and then we just kind of like make fun of the other person. Not this week, Nick. Um, oh, I'm with nice. You. I'm with you on this one. I think the this STD AIDS reading is is easy to do and it's kind of apt and I get it. But watching this movie and reading and thinking about it, I don't think it's I think it's a lot about sex, but I think it's more about what does sex lead you to, you know, in a lot of ways of it's this it's kind of a Christian movie in a weird way. If you kind of look at it through the ones that we're talking about and, and the one that I especially view it as which is that when you when you have sex for the first time societally more than like physically you you're no longer a kid you know you're really just an adult now and it's mm -hmm. like that's the last steps you take before it's like well you're 18 you're 17 however old you are welcome to the real world where people have sex and quite often when you when you boink you don't come out of it and go like, boy, that was the greatest thing in my life, especially with your first time. You're never like, God, give me a give, give me a parade. This is like a flower festival. Quite often, it's just like, oh, that's it, you know? And I think this movie is doing a lot of those feelings of like the horror that comes once you take that step physically with someone. And then it's like, I guess this is the rest of our life now. Because once you do it for the first time, it can often not be any special anymore. And then sex just leads to procreation and kids. And it's why I watched a video that made a great point about this. When they're in that hospital, there's that pan around the whole thing. And what do you see? You see a couple kind of like getting together, a couple together after the fact, and they're very standoffish, a couple with a kid, and then an older person kind of in a bed signifying death. It's the whole cycle of life. And then we get to Jay and Greg starting the cycle anew. And that, I think, is what this movie is about more than it is, you know, an STD. Josh, I, I'm so glad we agree on this. This is awesome. It very rarely happens. I'd like to read you one quote to, to finish off here. Um, the worst thing is that it's certain, which is from Fyodor Dostoevsky's The Idiot. 
Um, I think that's it in a nutshell, right? Like, like we've talked about, it's a very simple allegory to see this as an STD, but STDs aren't certain. They're not, you know, ever looming. You can get rid of some of them. Luckily, never had any experience with them. But to me, that, again, is just such a reading of death that I, I think, like you said, reading this as just an allegory for STDs is kind of a surface-level lazy reading. Well, the, the most obvious kind of thing that points it out to me is that when you look at this movie, they don't call the monster anything. The characters don't infer, the characters know there's a sexual link between what they do and the monster, but they never call it like the sex smeller, uh, the the hanky panky, you know, pretender. I don't know what they'd call it. Like, there's no allusion to like naming it something that conveys sex. Because at that point, if they do that, it's not the characters, it's David Robert Mitchell saying and clarifying what it actually is. You know, giving something a name, even something as simple as Michael Myers tells you it's a human thing or at the end of the day, I mean, Michael's not human, but whatever it's signaling something or like the, the monsters and evil dead, the deadites. Okay. That's what they are. Now I know, but this monster's never even labeled or an attempt to label it anything, which opens it up to the vagueness that we talked about with the paintings, but also more exclusively to death. Death is inexplainable death. You cannot wrap your head around. You can name it death and the Grim Reaper and all that sort of things, but it doesn't actually mean anything. It just means that's what happens to you. Whereas an STD, it's like, here's how you treat it. Here's what you do. Everything like that. Whereas death is inescapable, very much like the monster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree. I don't really have much more to go on. I, I just can't believe that we actually have a concept and analysis that we're not like, oh, I don't know about that. I need to do some yeah. more research. So. It's nice to have an easy week. I do think we have to talk about the ending, though, um, because this is one of the more vague endings I've seen in a movie for a long time that really makes it the eye of the beholder of, of is this good, is this bad? So do you think, in your opinion, that the monster is dead, or do you think it is still following them? Well, you can kind of see somebody in the background, you know, when right, they go but to that the could also just be someone walking. Two-shot wide. It could, right? Um, but throughout the whole entire movie, whenever we see somebody walking behind somebody else, it's usually a bad thing. And also, that street is pretty unpopulated besides the person walking right behind them. When it's the wide two-shot of them walking, to me, yeah, yeah. they're fucked. It's, it's, it's just like we talked about. Death is inescapable. You can't get away from it. Real bright stuff here on the Road Ducks podcast. <laughs> that is my reading as well, where when it here's the thing this movie i think is a lot about how sex becomes a relationship and how that relationship leads to banality and how that banality leads to just like loveless marriages which is why this is set in the suburban area of detroit not the metropolitan stuff where it can be perceived as like a fun nightlife sort of thing when you look at the way that that paul by the way paul sucks i just want to say that this dude's like hitting way above his pay grade by the end of this movie. And you can tell he's with, um, <laughs> you can tell he's with Jay for a while. Cause he's wearing this like really cool looking like jacket. Now it's like, come on, do you wearing like a really awful polo at the start of the movie? He's got that like Would boyfriend you, fit on. It's like a chance. Uh, what's the other guy's name in, um, Vukovic. It's like a chance Vukovic yeah. thing to live and die in LA. Yeah. 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 It's like, this dude got to step up cause he got, he bagged the girl. So now he's trying to impress her, yeah. but Going back to this idea of like suburban banality and marriage and kind of lovelessness, the way they are holding hands is not a loving embrace to me. When when you watch it, do you disagree? 
it's more the graduate than it is like a yes. love story. Yeah. Or them being in love. Yeah. It's like, we're resigned to this because we both have the same curse really. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's not quite like Tom Shiv's levels of, of like, boy, that that's a loveless relationship, but they're just kind of like loosely holding hands, walking around. And they have that moment where they look at each other and it's like a slight smile. It's not this like conveying everything's great. We're together. Life is going to be great from here on out. We're good. Smile. It's a like, well, we survived that. I don't know if we're going to survive anything else. And just real quick, real smart too, because that's not said. You know, no dialogue, which Josh and I always yes. love when people can can tell us a story and move us without words. So go ahead. Just want to throw that in. Yeah, and then when you think about the way that we're showing that, and then also keeping in mind the monster, which is I think behind them in that shot where they're holding hands. Mm-hmm. Well, what we assume is the monster. I think it is conveying the fact that they're not free of anything. I think it makes this movie a very, very cynical reading on life, which is interesting. I'm so surprised this movie is as popular as it is, because I found this to be one of the darkest, most depressing horror movies of like a while, because it is so towering and inescapable. And when you think about what it's saying about society and marriage and love in the 21st century, it's just empty. There's just nothing to it. It's very much, we talk about how cynical Under the Silver Lake is, but this movie really matches it stride for stride. Yeah, like I said, the last line in this movie that somebody says is, the worst thing is that it's certain. I mean, I don't really think you can end on a more somber note than that. So, um, speaking of ending on somber notes, (laughs) I think that just about does it for spooky season, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. If you've got anything else. Um, I also did convene with the CTP commission again this week, uh, you know, our weekly meeting, just talking about some stuff. There was a person that killed us the flower moon. We'll be talking about it at some point, but you know, it's neither here nor there that we'll say that for mm. later. Um, came up empty this week for it follows too. you know, we, we really searched this week, but when there's a cast of like five people, right. not a lot of room. Sure. All right, folks. That about does it for the road dogs podcasts. Like, rate, subscribe, check out that Instagram, road underscore dogs underscore podcast. Little palate cleanser next week. Josh, you want to go ahead and tell the audience what you'll be picking? We are doing Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Uh, I am reading the comics now as we as we mm. prep for the show. I'm getting deep into it. It's a fun, fun movie that I think is, is desperately needed after The Witch and then it follows. <laughs> I totally agree. Great palate cleanser and one that I've never seen. So it's a huge blind spot for me. Anyways, folks, like we said, check us out on Instagram, like, rate, subscribe, wherever you get your podcast. Road Dogs out.